Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is The Sidebar for the week of November 21st, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Johnson got in the habit of wanting to have these exact records so that if some guy went against him, he could go back and say, well, that's wrong. You promised me yesterday. And I quote, This week, the LBJ tapes, President Lyndon Johnson and the audio recordings made during his presidency with presidential historian Michael Beschloss. He's the author of two books examining these recordings, Taking Charge, the Johnson White House tapes, and Reaching for Glory, Lyndon Johnson's secret White House tapes. Michael Beschloss, as a historian, you and so many others have written about the complex character of LBJ. But you probably more than anyone else listening to all of these recordings, all of these tapes during his presidency, what do they tell us about the man and the Johnson presidency? Well, I think more than anything else, Steve, you know, if you'd wanted a source on Lyndon Johnson, you would have wanted tapes even before we knew that there were any. You know, for instance, we would hear people say, Johnson was so great at twisting the arm of a member of Congress, but you had to be there. I can't really describe how it happened. You know, Johnson did not keep a diary. He didn't write letters that were very revealing. You know, if we were talking, let's say, 20 years ago and we didn't know about the depth of these tapes, or actually would have been more than 20 years ago, I would have said if someone could be in the room and, and you know, have some kind of recording of exactly what Johnson said when he was on the telephone or in a private meeting, and even not only what he said, but, you know, the sounds in the room. For instance, you listen to these tapes and you hear, you know, the clinking of ice in a glass at some points in the late afternoon or gun smoke on the TV in the background. It takes you into the historical moment in a way that nothing else can. We're going to listen to some of these recordings, but how did it come about? Why did he record these phone calls and these conversations? And did Lyndon Johnson always know he was being recorded? In the 1950s, LBJ got worried that he would make a deal with another senator, and God forbid the senator would double-cross him and not keep the deal. So he began having his aide, Walter Jenkins, listen in, do a dead key extension on these telephone calls and make shorthand notes. Some of my historian friends re- refer to the notes that Jenkins made as the dead key scrolls. You, c- you can see why historians are not uh, exactly comedians. But the point is that Johnson got in the habit of wanting to have these exact records so that if some guy went against him, he could go back and say, well, that's wrong. You promised me yesterday. And I quote, And so that quickly evolved to when he became president, uh, he wanted a taping system in the White House to do the same thing even more exactly, also hoped it might help when he wrote his memoirs. Michael Beschloss, let's listen to some of these recordings. And this is a conversation between President Johnson and the FBI director shortly after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, the conversation on November 25th, 1963. 
apparently some lawyer in justice is lobbying with the post because uh, that's where the suggestion came from to, to this presidential commission, which we think would be very bad. Uh, and put it right in the White House. And, uh, we can't be uh, checking up on every uh, every uh, shooting scrape in the country, but they've gone to the Post now to get them an editorial, and the Post is calling up saying they're going to run an editorial if we don't do things. Now, we're going to do two things, and I want you to know about it. One, we believe that the way to handle this is, uh, as we said uh, yesterday, your suggestion that you whatever facilitates your command and making a full report to the Attorney General, and then uh, they make it available to the country in whatever form is, uh, seem, may seem desirable. Right. Second, well, the state, it's a state matter, too, and the State Attorney General is young and able and prudent and very cooperative with you. Yeah. He's going to run a, a court of inquiry, which is provided for by state law, and he's going to have associated with him the most outstanding uh, jurist in the country. That conversation between President Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover, November 25th, 1963, and Michael Beschloss, so much going on in the aftermath of the assassination of President Kennedy. You had the start of the FBI investigation, the creation of the Warren Commission, and conspiracy theories which continue to this day. Lee Harvey Oswald had been killed, and that meant that we would probably never know for certain, you know, what the answer was to the question of who killed John Kennedy and why. There were groups in Texas who wanted to investigate, the same thing with Congress. Johnson was worried that an investigation that was too freewheeling might get into whatever contacts Oswald had had with Cubans and Soviets, especially in Mexico. Johnson was very worried that if the American people found that there was any connection between Oswald and the Russians and or the Cubans, Americans would say, we'd better go to war or something like that with Cuba or even the Soviet Union in, in retaliation. As a result, Johnson appointed the Warren Commission, this presidential commission headed by the Chief Justice, whose object was to investigate President Kennedy's assassination, but Johnson was extremely eager that that commission come in with a verdict that Oswald was a lone gunman connected to no one else. Despite the fact that that was the verdict in 1964, Johnson privately for the rest of his life had suspicions that the Cubans and or the Russians were actually behind this. 1969, Johnson did an interview with Walter Cronkite of CBS, and Cronkite was asking about Kennedy's murder, and Johnson said to Cronkite, I've never been completely relieved of the fact that Oswald may have had international connections. Second, he said that Johnson's people went to CBS and said, take that out. We want it to be known that President Johnson believes in the Warren Commission. So long answer, but one reason why there is such suspicion is that the Warren Commission, for the most part, did a good job. But it never really engaged fully with the question of, did Oswald have serious connections with the Russians and the Cubans? And also, uh, did not engage the question of the assassination plots that the Kennedy administration uh, and the CIA of the early 1960s were engaged in against Fidel Castro. So anyone who looks at the Warren Commission has to say a lot of very important research there, but if the members did not engage with those two questions, hard to accept the verdict, and Johnson did not.
And of course, the assassination taking place in Lyndon Johnson's home state. How much pressure did he feel to make sure that the American people felt that he was a credible president, that uh, that he was becoming president under extraordinary circumstances? But of course, again, those conspiracy theories and questions about whether or not there was any connection between uh, outside forces in the Kennedy assassination. Johnson wanted to have the question resolved by the Warren Commission as completely and as quickly as possible. And in fact, the commission came out with its report in the late summer, early fall of 1964. Johnson wanted it done as soon as possible so that it wouldn't interfere with the campaign of 1964 when he was running against Barry Goldwater. In early December 1963, this phone conversation between the president and now former First Lady Jackie Kennedy. Mr. President? I just wanted you to know you were loved and by so many and so much. Oh, Mr. President. I'm one of them. I tried. I didn't dare bother you again, but I got Kenny O'Donnell over here to give you a message. If he ever saw you, did he give it to you yet? About my letter that that was waiting for me last night? Listen, sweetie, now, first thing you got to learn, you got some things to learn, and one of them is that you don't bother me. You give me strength. But I wasn't going to send you in one more letter, and I was Don't send me anything. Don't send me anything. You just come over and put your arm around me. That's all you do. When you haven't got anything else to do, let's take a walk. Let's walk around the backyard, and uh, oh. just let me let me tell you how much you, you mean to all of us, and how we can carry on if you give us a little strength. But you know what I want to say to you about that letter. I know how rare a letter is in the president's handwriting. Do you know that I've got more in your handwriting that I do in Jack now. December 2nd, 1963. Michael Beschloss, your thoughts. Well, you know, I was talking about taking you into the historical moment. You just listen to that, and you can pretty much, even if you don't know the exact facts behind it, see what's going on. Poor Jacqueline Kennedy, 10 days after her husband was murdered in her arms. Lyndon Johnson humanly trying to console her, but at the same time, you know, Steve, you were talking a moment ago about Johnson being worried about accepted as president. It was very important to him politically, which he knew that Jacqueline Kennedy be seen at his side. So there are tapes like the one that you've just played later on in December of 1963, where he keeps on saying, come back to the White House. You know, he wanted uh, her to be photographed with him to make it clear that you know, she was behind his presidency. She told him, I can't do that. And actually, after she left the White House, after Christmas of 1963, in that period, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy, for the rest of her life, found it much too painful, only returned to the White House once when she came back for the unveiling of her and JFK's portraits during the Nixon period. And in that brief conversation, a remarkably strong Jackie Kennedy, at least uh, for those who listen to it. Uh, She was, and most of the people who saw her and knew her and witnessed her going through this ordeal, she was, as you you might expect, absolutely thunderstruck by what had happened in, in Dallas, but also there was huge emotional strength. We move from the assassination to the politics of 1964, and before we listen to this exchange between Texas Governor John Connolly, who was in Dallas on November 22nd, he was injured in 1963. Of course, Lyndon Johnson and Governor Connolly were close political friends. What was the relationship like during this period between Bobby Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson? 
uh, mutual suspicion and antagonism. Robert Kennedy had basically almost never liked Lyndon Johnson, been suspicious of him, and was horrified that this was the person who had succeeded his brother as president. From LBJ's point of view, from the moment he became president, he was worried, and not without entirely without reason, that RFK might even try to run against him for the nomination for president in 1964. So the relationship began there, and you know, with a few exceptions, went downward. That relationship really dates back to the early 1950s when Lyndon Johnson was in the Senate and Bobby Kennedy was a staffer on the Senate side, correct? That's right. And to LBJ, you know, RFK was someone who was, he would say, RFK skipped the, the grades where you learn the rules of life, invited him once down to the ranch in Texas in the late 1950s and took him out hunting. And Johnson says to RFK, you know, boy, let me show you how a man handles a gun. It was not exactly an auspicious beginning to this this relationship. July 23rd, 1964, President Johnson and Governor Connolly. I have about come to the conclusion that it is just as, pos- just as positive as we're sitting here that he is going to force a roll call on his name for this place or the other place. I think probably the vice presidency at the moment. Uh, He will have some people in every delegation that have been friendly uh, or some way or other, and he'll be in touch with them. And they're going to have an emotional thing with this film and uh, Miss Kennedy and all of them. Then he's going to really make the pitch. That conversation from July 1964, again, the emotions, the raw emotions still very real with the assassination of President Kennedy and this film that was going to pay tribute to the slain president, correct? Uh, Exactly right. And it was supposed to be at the beginning of the convention week. And Johnson shrewdly said, better not have that because the emotion may carry RFK onto my ticket as vice president, which I do not want, or may even interfere with the nomination of me, LBJ, as president. So as a result, Johnson had Kennedy night moved to the last night of the convention, and we know what happened. RFK got up to introduce a film, and there was an ovation for him and really for his brother that lasted 10 or 15 minutes. That same conversation in July 1964 with President Johnson and Governor Connolly on Senator Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota. I'm just a damn good mind. If uh... If we campaign, if we have a problem, I have a good mind just turn Hubert loose by God and let him see him because nobody sees him but what likes him. He's a, he's a laughing fellow. You can't insult him. He just, he just smiles you out of the room, and he, he's logical as hell, and he's eloquent as hell, and he's for the poor man, and uh, that's where you got a lot of poor people. Michael Beschloss, what was the relationship like during this period between Senator Humphrey, who became his running mate, and President Johnson? They had worked together in Congress for 20 years, and Johnson, you know, knew that that Humphrey had the goods. At the same time, he didn't want to offer the vice presidency to Humphrey until he could essentially get a loyalty pledge out of him. And one of the later tapes before the Democratic convention, Johnson is saying to Humphrey, essentially, you know, if you're going to be the vice president, I want every assurance that you're going to be loyal. You know, in other venues, he would say to try to clean this up for your audience, that he wanted a vice president who would kiss his rear end in Macy's window and say it smelled like a rose. Johnson had very strict requirements of loyalty, 
and so he made Humphrey go through all those hoops. Humphrey finally was nominated, and in a way, if you advance it four years in the campaign of 1968, Humphrey still felt so bound by loyalty to Lyndon Johnson that he couldn't quite bring himself to completely break with the president over Vietnam, and that may have cost him the election against Richard Nixon. And we'll talk about the 1968 election in just a moment. But Michael Beschloss, as you look back at this time period with Hubert Humphrey on the ticket, were there others that that Lyndon Johnson was considering, or was he uh, early on the favorite? Not in a serious way. He thought briefly of Eugene McCarthy because he was being told that perhaps there should be a Catholic as vice president on the ticket. Ironic, since McCarthy ran against him in 1967-1968, and totally Johnsonian maneuver. Johnson was worried that most people figured that it was going to be Humphrey, and Johnson wanted to inject some suspense into this choice. So when Johnson, during convention week, was flying from the White House lawn up to Atlantic City, he took Humphrey, and he also took Thomas Dodd, the Democratic senator from Connecticut, whom no one had mentioned for vice president, trying to generate the idea that it was going to be either Humphrey or Dodd, which was ludicrous. Almost reminds us of Donald Trump today, doesn't it? Uh, I think it probably does. And how much of this was based on his own frustration of being vice president under President Kennedy and dealing with Robert Kennedy? Uh, Johnson said later of his vice presidency, I detested every minute of it. And one reason he detested it so much was that he came into this administration assuming that he would be number two to John Kennedy, quickly quickly realized that he was not number two. Number two and the chief advisor was not the vice president, but Robert Kennedy, the president's brother and attorney general. When I use the phrase, the Johnson treatment, and we're going to hear an exchange in just a moment with uh, Senate Democratic leader Mike Mansfield and the Republican leader Everett Dirksen, what does that mean to you, Michael Beschloss? Uh, persuasion. And, you know, Richard Neustadt, the famous Harvard political scientist, used to say that the president's chief power is the power to persuade. That's true of a president, but it's doubly true of Lyndon Johnson because he had this amazing ability to do that, which I guess we're going to hear. August 4th, 1965. How are you getting along? Uh, fine. I'm down here in uh, Everett Dirksen's office. Uh, Giving my regards. We just passed the conference report on the voting rights bill. Well, wonderful, wonderful. And I want you to talk to him and discuss wonderful. with him what uh, some of the possibilities you raised the other day. He did a great job. He lost out on his amendment, but he came through with this. Wonderful, wonderful. I'll be very happy to, Mike. He's right here. Okay. Okay. Hi. How are you, my friend? Glad oh. to hear you. <laughs> All right, how are you? You and Mike up there fraternizing together? Yes, sir. That's wonderful. That's good. How are you feeling, Everett? I'd have felt better if you'd hustled me a half a dozen votes. Well, you didn't want me to. You told me you didn't want me to do anything but sit there, and uh, all I'd have done is just stir up ten more against you. You well, know, I wanted you to interfere on the right side. That's all. <laughs> well, well, you, we you did a voting rights bill out. You, you ought to be proud of that, my friend. Well, yeah, we are proud of it. So, a couple of things at play here, Michael Beschloss. You have the Democratic and Republican Senate leader in the same office. And President Johnson early on saying, this is a major bill. We need bipartisanship on this. Right. Doesn't it sound antique? You know, it's almost impossible to imagine that happening nowadays in these times where the hostility is so great between the two parties in Congress. And the other thing, Steve, that it made me think of is that 
what the founders wanted is not what we're seeing in 2017, but what we just heard on that tape. You know, the founders wanted conflict. They felt that the best policy comes out of vigorous debate and duke it out on the House and Senate floors, but they also wanted compromise and negotiation, and that's what we're not seeing nowadays. Michael Beschloss, let's move to 1968, the Vietnam War escalating, the draft, the anti-war protests. And this is a conversation between President Johnson and the head of the Auto Workers Union, Walter Ruther. Now, what they have done, they have changed their strategy completely. They have decided that they want to try to wrap this thing up in our election year. So they've come out of the woodwork, and they plan to move in on us in two great ways and try to try to uh, uh, have a blitz. The first one uh, caused great consternation and uh, problems, but uh, uh, did not uh, result in their holding the cities. The second one is yet to come off. We're right in the face of it. They have moved 50,000 men in. We have not moved any men in. As a matter of fact, we've moved some out. Uh, so that is what we're facing as of now. Uh, every move uh, uh, is being carefully calculated by them and by us. We don't want to put more men in than we need to hold those we have. We don't want to be overrun. It's a hell of a calculation to know what is enough and what is too much and what is not enough, you see. March 20th, 1968, and Michael Beschloss, Ken Burns really chronicles what the country was going through and how the Vietnam War basically split the country. Right, and that's 11 days before Johnson decided to pull out of the race and retire from the presidency. And what he's doing there is Johnson, Johnson really wanted to run in 1968, so he's calling up Walter Ruther, head of the United Auto Workers, his great ally on things for unions and you know, progressive programs, civil rights, and saying, I want you to be with me in 1968, and this is how I'm trying to get out of the war in Vietnam, which he knew that Ruther was very concerned about. And the conversation goes on with Ruther basically saying, thanks, Mr. President, but as long as this war is there, I'm not sure that I can be with you in 1968. And that conversation was one of the influences on Johnson, you know, saying essentially it may be too tough for a lot of reasons, I'm going to pull out of the race. Which led to this speech to the nation on March 31st, 1968. With America's sons in the field far away, with America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. In a city of leaks, Michael Beschloss, this was not expected, was it? No, and it didn't leak because Johnson didn't decide until literally the last moment. Even Lady Bird Johnson did not fully know when he began that speech whether he was going to deliver you know, those sentences at the end of it. 
This is a conversation that same evening between President Johnson and Frank Stanton, the head of CBS News. Before we listen to it, why did he call him? Uh, Frank Stanton was the head of CBS, but he was also one of LBJ's closest friends and advisors, probably a relationship that you would not see nowadays. And so he was calling Stanton much more as his pal and advisor than he was as a president of a network. Here is a portion of that conversation, March 1968. I had problems. I didn't know just what was right, but I, I came to the conclusion that this was the only thing to do. And uh, the uh, maybe we can spend nine months and maybe we can move mountains. We're really going to try to, and we're not going to do it with barbecues and these uh, primaries and all the hatred and the division and the selfishness. You, you can't take on everybody and, and get this job done there, too. And I, I just hope that they, uh, I just know it's the thing to do. That conversation in March of 1968, and he uses the words hatred and division. You could almost sense the dejection that he was facing after five and a half years in the White House. Absolutely. And he said privately, I am just not the kind, I'm not the person who can unite this country. At the same time, he would have loved in 1968 to run again and feel vindicated. He was also worried about his health. People and men in his family tended to die in their early 19, in their early 60s of heart disease, as Johnson finally did. But the main thing was that Johnson felt that if he pulled out, he might be able to get a peace deal with North Vietnam that would you know, essentially assure his reputation as president. If you had the ability to ask President Johnson a question today based on all of your research, your many books, and listening to these recordings, what would you ask him? I would say, given what you now know with 2020 hindsight, what a catastrophe and tragedy Vietnam turned out to be for the people of the United States, would you escalate the war again? For the rest of his life, Johnson always insisted that he would. And one of the big questions, had Kennedy lived, would he have done the same? That's exactly right. And that's one reason why people are so focused on the Kennedy assassination, because if you believe And I could argue this round or flat, that if John Kennedy had lived, he would have not escalated the the war in Vietnam. History in America would have taken a very different turn, and therefore that moment of the assassination turns out to be a much more important moment even than many people might have thought at the time. And finally, what role did Lady Bird Johnson have in the release of these tapes? Uh, Really quite total, and I was somewhat involved in that in the early 1990s. Uh, there were essentially two choices. Uh, The Johnson Library could have refused to release these tapes, and there was pressure that particularly came from, you know, the the JFK Assassination Records Act, which said that government records connected in any way to the assassination had to be opened. And the Johnson people thought that if that happened, there might be years of litigation that they they would have to be involved in, or... And the question was brought to Mrs. Johnson, who had a large say in this. You know, you can just choose to open these tapes, you know, and essentially, you know, be on the side of right and transparency and openness. And she did it. It was a very courageous decision because she did not know what was on these tapes. 700 hours plus, if you include tapes of meetings, could have been anything. 
And her view, you know, I talked to, to her about this many times, was essentially, you know, I know that there will be things in these tapes that I do not like, but I have enough confidence in my husband's character and his record and his reputation that if people learn more about him, it's going to help him, not hurt him. We can't talk about Lyndon Johnson without talking about the conversation he had with Joe Hager. So set this up. Well, Johnson, in August of 1964, was making a call to Joe Hagar of the Hagar Slacks Company, and amid a lot of calls about Vietnam and civil rights, Johnson calls about the fact that he needs a pair of trousers. We will listen from August 9th, 1964. I want them a half inch larger in the waist than they were before, except I want two or three inches of stuff left back in there so I can take them up. I vary 10 to 15 pounds a month. So uh, leave me at least two and a half, three inches in the back where I can let them out or take them up and put it, make these a half inch bigger in the waist. Make the pockets at least an inch longer. Money, My money and my knife and everything fall out. Wait just a minute. Hello? Hello. Now, the pockets, when you sit down in the chair, the knife and your money comes out. So I needed at least another inch in the pockets. Yeah. Now, another thing with crotch down where your nuts hang is always a little too tight. So when you make them up, give me an inch that I can let out there uh, because they cut me. It's just like riding a, a wire fence. These are almost these are the best that I've had anywhere in the United States. But uh, uh, when I gain a little weight, they cut me under there. So leave me. Uh, you never do have much margin there. Let's see if you can't leave me about it an inch from the, where the zipper ends uh, round uh, under my back to my bunghole. All right, then. So I can let it out there if I need to. Michael Bachloss, you have to laugh as you listen to this. Uh, classic Lyndon Johnson? Uh, that's what he was like in private. And anyone who says, you know, these tapes are just Johnson basically sort of saying things for history that he wants people to know about later on, if I had to give you an example, Steve, of the conversation that Johnson maybe would have most hated, you know, you and me listening to and you play on C-SPAN and, and this, this podcast decades later, it would be this conversation because Johnson was always worried about, you know, seeming like what he used to call some uncouth backwoods country woodsman. Was he crude, though, in, in that conversation and and you hear the burp and you hear his body parts the way he describes it uh, in in great detail uh that's the way he often talked in private especially on the ranch and maybe especially to another texan michael beschloss author and historian we thank you for being with us my pleasure You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.